This morning, we're actually going to be talking about uh, 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 really uh, the marital relationship or marriage and, and uh, interpersonal relationships as it relates to a man and a woman. We've chosen this morning's, uh, the title of this morning's talk, this morning's message to be simply this, love the one you with. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, it's going to be good this morning. I, I can feel it already. Say that with me. Love, Love. The, one the one you're with. You're with. Mm-hmm. So last week we started this conversation around you before me. And we said one of the biggest stumbling blocks, one of the biggest obstacles uh, to, to honoring others and preferring and deferring to others is our selfishness. Our anchor text for this series is actually lifted from James chapter 4 and it frames everything that we're going to be saying over the next several weeks. So let's land right here in the anchor text, and then we'll move on to today's message. James writes uh, in James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 from the New Living Translation. He says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? He begins by identifying the source of every conflict, every interpersonal conflict you and I will ever experience. He goes to the root of the matter and he says, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? It comes from within. The conflicts we experience are not external in their origin. They are internal in their origin and they are the result of our evil and often selfish desires. So if you find yourself in some kind of conflict, some kind of struggle today, consider the origin of it. It may be the result of selfishness. He goes on in verse 2 to say, you want what you don't have, covetousness, so you scheme and you kill to get it. The second part of that verse says, you are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Can I say this? You and I will never experience the you before me kind of life as long as you're jealous of what others have and become dissatisfied with what you do have. When you and I become jealous of what others have, we become competitive instead of complementary. We begin to compete with people instead of celebrating them. So the you before me lifestyle, we're talking about radical love, but as long as I covet what someone else has, has, and as long as I am envious of what someone else has, and as long as I am dissatisfied with what I have and who I am, I cannot honor, prefer, or defer to someone else, the you before me lifestyle becomes impossible. And let's go back to the great test commandment where Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, spirit, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. My capacity to love my neighbor is contingent on loving myself. I cannot love Wendy if I haven't first learned to love myself. Love something that God made. 
And as long as I see myself as less than, as long as I see myself as inadequate, as long as I see someone else as better than me, I cannot love the way Jesus loved because Jesus said I can only love my neighbor as according to the same measure as I've chosen to love myself. You before me begins with overcoming our selfishness. He goes on in, in, in verse 3. He goes on in verse 3. And again, I, I felt the need to revisit this from last week so we can establish our foundation. He goes on in verse 3. He says, you fight and you wage war to take it away from them, yet you do not have what you want because you don't ask God. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. They say, well, God, I've been praying the same prayer for seven, eight, nine, ten years, and nothing's changing. And the scripture is saying it's not because you haven't asked. It's because you've asked with the wrong motives. Impure motives because maybe your prayers are driven by your selfishness, your jealousy of others, and your coveting of what others have, and your desire to exchange the life that God gave you for the life that someone else has. Most of us invest our time. Most of us invest our lives doing things to impress people who don't even care, who sometimes don't even notice. And we measure our, our success and we measure our value by whether or not we can one-up the person sitting next to us. And as long as my child is in one more sport than yours, Plano residents who don't have time, who go to three practices a week and three games a week and have no margin for family, have no margin for God, what's really driving you? What's really driving you? Because at the root of it, there could be some selfishness that is really rooted in the fact that I want what she got. And I want what you got. And we can never get to the you before me way of life because life has become a competition. And as long as I'm competing with you, I cannot serve you. As long as I'm competing with you, I'm unwilling to serve you. The amazing thing is, over the time that Wendy and I have been in ministry, we've even seen that with couples, husbands and wives, competing against each other, resenting the success of a spouse, feeling stuck and unfulfilled, and resenting their spouse's success. It is a matter of the human condition. We are inherently and intrinsically selfish. And so we're going to talk about this that this morning because we mentioned this last week that there are four cornerstones of contentment. And if we struggle with contentment, it's usually going to be in one of these four areas. And here they are. Put them on the screen. Number one, where I am. Most people are, 
not content with where they are in life. Unhappy, unfulfilled, dissatisfied. Number two, what I do. Some people, unfulfilled, discontent about what they do. Number three, what I have. Big one, always wanting more. The scripture says, greed like a leech has two daughters. Both say, give me, give me, give me. Greed always says, I owe myself. I'm entitled to this. I deserve it. And most of us go through life unfulfilled because we're not content with what we have. Yet Paul said, I have learned to be content with whatsoever things I have, whether I abound or whether I am abased. Most important word, I have learned. Remember, we are inherently selfish. Contentment is something we must learn. Yeah. It's not automatic, it's not intuitive. So this is where we're gonna land. Number four, contentment with who I'm with. Contentment with who you're with. Contentment with who you're with. This message is specifically for married folk, or if you're dating, you're in a committed relationship. This is what we're going to talk about this morning. <laughs> Contentment with who you're with. Finding joy and pleasure and satisfaction with the one I am with. Not looking for it somewhere else. Or looking for it in someone else. Or looking for it in something else. Not looking for a substitute or a replacement for who, with who you're with. And in order to get there, you and I have to make a decision to let go of our selfishness. Let go of our selfishness. And start to think, you before me. So here we go. Let's dive into the text for today's lesson. Song of, Sol Song of Solomon, verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 16. This is where it begins. This is where it begins. I love it. Because uh, 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 the writer uh, uh, expresses uh, the exclusivity and the contentment in the exclusivity of their relationship when, when uh, she writes, this is a Shunammite woman, and she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. Come on, somebody. That's where it starts. The exclusivity of the relationship. You belong to me. And I belong to you. Isn't that what we said in our marriage vows? Mm -hmm. Forsaking all others. It's amazing how many people come into the marriage covenant with a plan B. It's amazing. It's amazing how many people come into marriage and still, 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 
got these side conversations on the side. I can't talk to my wife, so let me talk to Carmelita. You, you, I can't talk to my husband. He just doesn't get me. So, so there's this guy from high school, and we just reconnected on Facebook. He, he, he understands me. He, he gets me. I can talk to him about anything. And it's amazing how many people go into the relationships, and they don't even begin with exclusivity. It's just almost like community love. Isn't that gross? Yes. You've given your heart, though, your most intimate thoughts and feelings to somebody else because you can't talk to your husband. And we haven't even started with the exclusivity. Baby, I'm going to let you jump in in a second with the exclusivity because I'm fired up. The exclusivity of the relationship. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Okay, look at Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15. Again, these are the words of the wisest man who ever lived. Listen to what he says in Proverbs 5 and verse 15. <laughs> I'm talking about exclusivity and contentment with who you with. With who you with. Their flaws, their quirks, their habits, their idiosyncrasies, the things you like and the things you, things you don't like. Listen to what Solomon says in Proverbs 5, beginning at verse 15. He said, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Verse 18 says, let your fountain be blessed, and listen to this, and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Where do you find contentment? Not out here in the streets. Not floating around on social media. Not comparing what you have with what everybody else has. He says, rejoice. Rejoice, find gratitude, find joy, find praise over and over and over and over and over again. From where? One place, the wife of your youth. Don't go looking for it somewhere else. Don't go looking for it somewhere else. Figure out a way to create an environment at the crib where you find joy from the wife of your youth. He goes on. Oh, come on, somebody. This is some love chamber stuff right here now. <laughs> Verse 19. It says, as a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured. Always be enraptured by her love. You, you know what that word enraptured means? In the Hebrew, it means to be intoxicated. It means to be drunk. It means to be high. In fact, one of the meanings for this word is to be led astray by her love. 
that her love, the love that you have for her, leads you astray. It, it means you follow you're so intoxicated by her love, so fulfilled and so content with her love that you follow her and stumble behind her intoxicated by the love that she gives you. The exclusivity of who you're with. The exclusivity of who you're with. Not looking for it somewhere else or in someone else because you are enraptured intoxicated by her love. Listen to what he says. For why should you, my son, be intoxicated, enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of, of a seductress? Why? Why should you look for it somewhere else? Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because we missed the whole point of intimacy in marriage. The scripture says that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. We talked about this in our Kingdom Marriage Bible study. Baby, come here for a second. Uh, stand up with me. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the way most of us go through marriage. Last week we did an illustration with Tony and Tasha about pulling on the belt and uh, something's got to give. And as long as we're fighting for our way, Wendy's pulling that way, I'm pulling that way, it creates more distance. The harder I pull, the harder she pulls, the further we grow apart. The more selfish I am, the more selfish she is, the further or farther we grow apart. The, we get together when someone gives. We, we draw closer together when I let go of the tension in the belt, in the rope, and we draw closer together when someone gives, you before me. What is also true about relationships is sometimes we confuse proximity for intimacy. Just because you're in the same room, just because you're in the same bed, just because you're in the same house, doesn't mean you're intimate with your wife. And this is the way most of us go through life. And, and I think Wendy and I have been guilty of it as well. Because we do everything side by side. Mm -hmm. This is how we parent. Mm -hmm. When we correct our kids, when we encourage our kids, we do it side by side. When we do ministry, we do it side by side. Mm -hmm. When we make plans, we do it side by side. Yet the height of intimacy is not going through life side by side because proximity can be deceptive. Mm -hmm. Just because I'm standing next to you doesn't mean we're intimate. Mm -hmm. This is what intimacy looks like. Mm -hmm. Intimacy is when I turn inward. Mm -hmm. Most of us take on the world looking outward. Mm -hmm. And sometimes our lives become transactional. When are you picking up the kids? What's the schedule? What's the next meeting? And we think that because we're talking and we're side by side, mm -hmm. having these transactional conversations, that somehow we're doing good. Mm -hmm. When the truth is, in fact, let me ask you that question. In spite of all that you're doing, when was the last time you turned inward? Mm -hmm. When was the last time you turned inward? Mm -hmm. Because this is the only thing. Mm -hmm. This is the only thing that you get to do exclusively where you turn inward. Yes. Everything else you'll do in life, you will do facing outward. Let me tell you about why there is such difficulty turning inward. Mm -hmm. And the reason we look for solutions and answers turning outward. Can I tell you? Right here, there's too much tension right here for me to turn inward. Mm -hmm. And because I can't deal with this, I've got to look outward 
to this. And what we want to help you with this morning now, what we want to help you with this morning are the things that will, that will cause you to look inward. Because as long as you're looking inward, there's very little that is outward that will distract you. The reason we're so distracted is because we haven't looked inward. The reason we don't look inward is because we're scared. The scripture says that they were both naked and unashamed. If I turn inward to you, if I turn inward to you with my struggles, with my issues, will this be a safe enough place or are you going to use this against me? And can I be vulnerable enough with you and not have to live with that admission of my weakness and my struggle for the rest of my life? Well, I don't know if I could do it here, but I know I can, I can call Carmelita. <laughs> Carmelita ain't never going to judge me. She ain't going to. I'm just going to tell her. I can't tell you, because if I tell you, you can't handle it. I'm talking about contentment. I'm talking about contentment. And I'm talking about intimacy and why most of us struggle with intimacy. And so here we go, baby. I'm sorry. I'm going to give you some time, baby. I'm going to give you some time here in a second. Have a seat. Have a seat. Have a seat. I promise you. So, so you before me, you before me. Thank you, baby. Come on, baby. Come on, baby. I'm your Spanish matador, baby. All right, bring up. I usually I usually put two in my pocket. Just so you know, guys, if you put two pocket squares in your pocket, then you can, you can let this hang out better. You see that? Yeah. <laughs> Skills. Esquire magazine. <clears throat> uh, why? Okay, why? Why? We're about to, we're about to go in here. Okay, why? Uh, the, the challenge with intimacy. Uh, sometimes it becomes too hard, too tense to look inward. It becomes too hard, so we start looking for better options. The way that we begin to live this you-before-me life and this contentment with who I'm with, I mean, I mean, thinking for the long haul. I'm talking to married folk now. I'm, I'm talking to married folk and saying, it's you and me together forever. Some people are like, huh? Really? Yeah. You and me together forever. Love the one you're with. Love the one you're with. Not the one you hope you were with. Love the one you're with. So, so how do we do that now? to create an environment in the relationship where we are looking inward, looking inward, 
not distracted by what's outward, okay? You ready? All right, point number one, pursue peace. Pursue peace. Pursue peace. One of my favorite lines uh, from one of my favorite movies, First Night. Anybody remember First Night? Sean Connery. Somebody said, yes, like you're in love with Richard Gere or something. Was that Shavonda? It came from over there. Some, was that you, Shavonda? You like Richard Gere? Is that what it is? Okay. First night. So in first night, uh, uh, Sean Connery is around the round table, right, with all of his knights. And, and Maligant comes, comes in, and, and, uh, and, uh, and they're having this conversation about how he's going to take Camelot. And, uh, and Sean Connery says, sometimes. <laughs> that was good, wasn't it? That was, that was good. That was good. <clears throat> Sometimes peace is found on the other side of war. Sometimes peace is found on the other side of war. So conflict in relationships in and of themselves are not bad. But we need to learn how to resolve conflict in a healthy way. And sometimes the reason we don't look inward is there are either people who avoid conflict or people who don't know how to do conflict well. So when Wendy and I got married, I was a fight guy. Let's deal with it and move on. Wendy was more on the flight side of the equation. So when things got intense and things got hectic, Wendy would run to the room and right as my nose is coming through the door, my tippy-toed nose, right here. That door would shut, bam. And then I'd retreat to my corner there, pouting. Because me, I want to deal with it and move on. Wendy was more of a flight type person. So tell us what was going on in those moments when we had conflict and I wanted to fight, meaning I wanted to, let's, do, let's deal with this and move on. And you felt like you didn't want to in that moment. Tell us what's going on in your head. Well, it wasn't that I didn't want to. I felt unheard. I felt that fighting was only for me to see things by your perception, by your perspective. And so feeling unheard, then I am turning into the Incredible Hulk. Okay, remember what she said about feeling unheard, all right? Make a mental note about what she said about feeling unheard. It's good, man, because we want to connect the dots here with the other. It's so good. It's juicy. All right, man. So it wasn't that I didn't want to resolve the conflict, but you say your piece, I say my piece, and then it would be at that time, no, 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 no. But, and I felt like, well, I don't want to hear a three-point sermon. With this, we got to deal with this right here. And feeling unheard, I'm getting more and more angry. The Bible says be angry and sin not. Well, my anger at that time and level of immaturity would lead me to sin. Because if I'm not feeling heard and I did not know, I was not equipped very, I knew how to communicate, but being in conflict with people, it was not, I didn't ever have to use that. I'm not a person, I've not really fallen out with girlfriends and not, a. I never, I'm 46, I've never argued with my mother. I've never slammed the door. I've never walked away from her. My sister and I get along well. So I just had always avoided conflict or was just good enough to just make peace. 
So in having to deal with conflict, I think it was a lot of levels I felt I'd unheard. Then because of my immaturity, I was embarrassed by my tantrums. And so then I would want to retreat because I'm like, oh, I say I love Jesus. And how you just cuss your husband, you know, or just be so mad, want to cuss him. I was cussing, though, but I've been delivered. But, you know, back then I just didn't, you know. Real talk. Because I'm like, no, that's not how it is. And he's like, no, no, no. And I'm like, you don't know. But I'm trying to tell you how I feel. And he is a contemplator. The greatest thing about a contemplator is that they think things through. They measure out every scenario. They usually go into things with great wisdom. The downfall of a contemplator is they think they're right about everything. They are right about 99.9% of things. But when it comes to your personal feelings, they really can't, can't, they, they really can't speak to those things. And so because my feelings weren't in a three-point, this-is-it, black-and-white situation, and I usually have to, you know, talk around things, I'm an influencer, so I don't, my contemplator is on the bottom. And so that can annoy people because I think while talking— It's not a character flaw. That's just how God made me. And so for me to work it out, I actually do need to talk, but then feeling unheard. And so then I'm just like, yeah. So the beauty of what came out of that, and thank you. So no, no, that's good. The beauty of what came out of that. Let me tell you the beauty of what came out of that, because now we want to make sure we preserve intimacy in the marriage. And in order to do that, we have to pursue peace. We can't let conflict linger. What came out of that for us is we established the Harmon rules of engagement. We decided, okay, this is acceptable when we argue and fight. This is unacceptable. And so every couple, if you're going to pursue peace and you're going to be content with the one you live, because if you don't resolve that conflict now, you're going to be looking for peace somewhere else. Let me tell you what most of us, the the way most of us are wired. Most of us don't want transformation or change. We just want relief. Y'all missed that. Let me tell you about transformation and release, uh, relief. Transformation and relief and change not transformation and relief, transformation and change happen on the other side of conflict. Most of us avoid the conflict, and so we just want enough relief. So you call up Carmelita. Carmelita can fix the problems in your marriage. She can give you temporary relief. She can give you temporary relief, and she can pump up your ego and make you feel better about yourself. But guess what? When you come back home, There's still no peace. And most of us, all we want is just a little hit. We want somebody to give us a little hit to make us feel better about it, and we don't want to resolve conflict. So he says, pursue. So then, let us pursue. What do we pursue? We pursue peace. We make it a priority that if I'm going to turn inward with my spouse, I am going to make the effort, all right? And this is what the scripture says in Romans chapter 12, as much as it depends on you. Listen to this now. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's what most of us do. We don't take responsibility for our part. And we focus on what the other person ain't doing. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you and I take personal responsibility for our part. So I got to ask myself that question. If I'm not experiencing intimacy in my relationship, if there's unresolved conflict, have I done my part to pursue peace? Listen to what it says. So let us let us pursue what makes for peace. And mutual upbuilding. For mutual upbuilding. You know what that means? Uh, When was the last time you built your spouse up? And spouse, when was the last time you built your spouse up? It is a mutual upbuilding. And so this is what most of us do. I'll go if you go first. And so we do marriage like the chicken and the egg. Which one came first, the chicken or the egg? What that means is what comes first? Love your wife as Christ loved the church or wives respect your husband. Husband say, well, I will love you if you respect me. Wife says, I'll respect you if you love me. And so there's that tension in that marriage where she's pulling and saying, love me better. And I'm saying, submit to me better. And the more we fight, the further we drift apart. When we're not doing what God called us to do. Stay in your lane. Husbands, love your wives. It gives no condition. Love your wives if she respects you. No. It says love your wives as Christ loved the church. He died for an imperfect church. He died for us when we were at our worst. Husbands, are you willing to live a you before me kind of lifestyle when your wife is at her worst? That's what he commands us as husbands to do. Has nothing to do with whether she's respecting me or not. It says, love Wendy as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for an imperfect church. Are you willing to die for your wife with her imperfections? And then he says to the woman, respect your husband. Well, is she supposed to respect me when I'm on top of the world? Is she still supposed to respect me when I'm at my worst? The scripture gives no condition for how a wife is supposed to respect her husband. Say, honor him and respect him. And if we were to do those two things, we would begin to experience mutual upbuilding. Because everybody is doing their part. Now, this is why it's important. Peace withers in a life that is filled with relational conflict. Nobody wants to stay in a place indefinitely where there's no peace. And that's why people check out. I can't stay in this marriage any longer. I have no peace. And the reason you have no peace is because you're selfish. Y'all don't like that part, eh? Yeah. The reason there's no peace is because you are selfish. Okay? So, so, so what is peace? Listen to this. What is peace? Peace is the calm assurance that what God is doing is best. The calm assurance that what God is doing right now is best. In my relationship, what God is doing right now is best. It is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. That's what peace is. Most of us think, oh, man, and this is how we do. We think that peace is everybody not saying nothing. But just because you ignore it doesn't mean it went away. 
that giant elephant in the room is still there whether you acknowledge it or not. And so this is the way we go through a marriage. Quiet, saying nothing, and think we at peace. Peace is not the absence of trouble. It is the presence of Christ in the midst of your trouble. And let me tell you why most of us don't get to peace. And the reason we have conflict and we look for relief somewhere else. Again, we're talking about you before me. We're talking about you before me. It doesn't have to be a way. Okay, and we're going to wrap up. I didn't even get through my notes, but we're going to get ready to wrap. Yeah, go ahead, babe. Well, one thing is we have to go back to just foundations. We need to really evaluate our conversion. I mean, really ask ourselves, am I saved? Am I a Christian? Do I really believe in Jesus Christ? Because if we love God, we are going to do what he asks us to do. And that's where I was. I had to, I can't just say, oh, I love Jesus and, and do work in church and serve at, well, in our early married life. We will have been married 16 years uh, in March. And then I love God, served, called, anointed, and then I can cuss my husband. That doesn't even match. It doesn't even go together. The Bible specifically says that blessing and cursing cannot come from the same mouth. So how can I say I love God and then have such an unruly temper? And so I had to really deal with what is this thing in me? Number one, immaturity. Immaturity, not chronologically. Immaturity in my faith walk. Immaturity in my knowledge of God's word. Immaturity, 1 Corinthians 13 says, the love of God in me does not act unbecomingly. And so I had to go and start reading that 1 Corinthians 13 out of the Amplified Bible, really getting what the word uh, said and really depending on Jesus. The only reason that I fought like a baboon for my way is because I was not trusting God to deal with Ray. Bottom line, if I trust that God is going to speak to him and deal with him, I can say my piece and tell God, I need you to get your boy and leave it, leave it there. And just, I mean, really leave it there. Anoint the bottom of his shoes when he's gone to work. Just lay on his side of the bed. You know, there's some things that we can do according to the word. But when I fight like somebody that does not even know Jesus, then I've got a question, do I know Jesus? I might have professed with my mouth, but I've not gotten it in my heart. And there's levels. So when we first got married, I'm sure God gave me a few passes. I didn't just wake up in the morning acting like a baboon. I had been given plenty of, in the world's terms, reasons. But I still didn't have reason according to the word of God. And so when we are in these levels of conflict, and I am the number one poster child of what not to do, as a newlywed when it comes to your temperament. But I had to deal with that. That wasn't, it was never, my maturity was never dependent on Ray doing right by me. My maturity, it was never dependent on if Ray was nice enough. 
I'm going to stand before Jesus all by myself. And my maturity was dependent on was I going to make Jesus Lord of my mind, will, and emotions. He can't just be Lord of, okay, I'm saved and I go to church. He has to Lord over my emotions. And I am given to great passion. That's good and it's bad. Not submitted to Jesus. I'm given to great, I mean, just, I mean, and that is a wonderful thing when somebody needs prayer for healing. That is a, I've got passion. I mean, I've got Lazarus faith that people can raise from the dead. I mean, it is wonderful. Submitted to Jesus. Unsubmitted to Jesus, my personality type is most like Satan. My personality type, unsubmitted to Jesus. That same passion, unruly, is just evil and vindictive and venomous and mean. And if I didn't get those things in order between me and Jesus, I didn't need to have a whole lot of counseling sessions. You can save yourself some money. Just open you up a book. I can give you one for free. I'm not being sarcastic. There is a way that we can do this, but I have spent a lot of money. We have spent thousands of dollars in counseling, so I do believe in it. But it doesn't matter how much counseling I go to, how many services, how many hands laid on me, how much I hop on one fit coming into Cadillac, leaving in a Honda. If I don't make a decision that, Jesus, I make you Lord over all of Wendy then I run the risk of standing before Christ and him saying, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I know you not just because of my unsubmitted emotions that I allowed to rule in an ungodly manner in my life. Good stuff. Good stuff. So it goes back to what you said, choices, right? So the first choice is I'm going to pursue peace. The second choice, the second choice, the second choice. And this is why I said, y'all remember that thing. What was that thing that Wendy said that I said, y'all remember? Being unheard. Come on, somebody. Thank you. You used to sit in the front of the class, didn't you? Good job. That's good. Uh, Being unheard. So the choices now. If we're going to create an environment that is peaceful, where we can turn inward and have intimacy so we can be content and love the one I'm with, you before me, the first choice is pursue peace. Here's the second choice. Huge. And y'all give me a few minutes because I got to say this. And this is what I thought about. It's like, we're going to extend this thing. I thought we're only going to do it in February. We've got to go longer because there's several other aspects of you before me that we need to cover. So we're going to go longer. We're going to take our time. But uh, pursue peace. Here's the second one. Be reasonable. Be reasonable. How are you going to have a peaceful marriage, y'all, if you insist on being unreasonable? And I will venture to say that you know exactly what I'm talking about and you know exactly when you're doing it and you act like you don't know what you're doing. You're insisting on being unreasonable. You insist on doing it your way and I'm not going to give him that. And you know that's the very thing that will heal the marriage. You're unreasonable. Listen to what this is the Bible. From the the ESV translation, Philippians 4, 5, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That when people see you coming, they say, here comes a reasonable woman. 
Here comes a reasonable man. You know what that means? Reasonableness, it, it, here's the definition, that you are not unnecessarily rigorous. Think about that in your relationships. Unnecessarily rigorous. You make people jump, and they got to ask you how high. Nope, that wasn't high enough. Okay? Okay, baby, I'm going to do the dishes. Yeah, you don't do the dishes. Don't help me with nothing. Do the dishes? No, that's not good enough. You didn't wipe them down. Da, 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 da. Okay, why you, you wipe them down? Why you didn't put them up? Husbands, wife working, you working. I don't eat leftovers. You need to cook a meal every day. I know husbands like that. She working, you working, she taking the kids, and you are unnecessarily rigorous, unreasonable. How are you going to live in peace? You're making demands that are unreasonable of your spouse. And the scripture says, let your reasonableness be known to all men. Can't nobody tell you nothing. If it ain't your way and exactly the way you want it, listen to what it say. Don't be unnecessarily rigorous. Number two. Insisting on the letter of conformity. That's what unreasonable, you insist on the letter of conformity. And that's the way you treat people. And that's the way you treat your spouse. Something's got to give. You're unreasonable in your expectations. This is what reasonableness means, though. It means you forego your rights in order to experience peace. How many of you are willing to forego your rights, even if it is a right, to forego it and say, you before me, this is a right that I have, but in order to have peace, I'm going to let it go. How many of us are willing to do that? Because that's what you before me looks like. And let me give you the, the litmus test for what is reasonable. Any request that someone makes of you that makes you accountable to the word of God is not unreasonable. Amen. I'll say that again. Any request that is made of you that makes you accountable to the word of God is not unreasonable. You know what that means? If your wife said, get up and go get a job. <laughs> that's not unreasonable. That's biblical. If your husband says to you, baby, I know you've been having this headache for the last six weeks, but baby. <laughs> come on now. That's not unreasonable. That's biblical. The Bible says do not withhold that. I'm talking now because you're being unreasonable. And you're wondering why he's calling up Carmelita. You're wondering why Carmelita looks a little bit more attractive. You are unreasonable. You don't want to give him none. Don't say, ooh, I'm talking to grown folk. Am I lying? Do I need to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? His request is not unreasonable. It is biblical. Any request that your spouse makes of you that makes you accountable. Come on, somebody. Makes you accountable. You saw my skills? <laughs> Man, that was, uh, I almost had it, though. I had my.
And those requests also include if your spouse has an issue with your friend list on Facebook and Instagram who's following you and they and that the person is of the opposite sex, if y'all all can't have dinner and lunch together, it needs to be some deletion going on. Good. Now, it's not in the Bible, thou shalt ask that spouse to delete friends on Facebook. But I'm going to let you know that those types of relationships keep an open door. If there is, my homeboy, Ray, has mentioned you. He called, and guess what I said after I said, it's so good to hear from you. Say hey to my husband. And I didn't even give Ray a chance. You can't go through me. So my homeboy sees my haircut. He said, oh, I like your haircut. I said, yeah, Ray loves it. He got a little too familiar last week. He- there was a guy that came up to you and said something at the mall or something. Hey, girl. Hey, shorty. What's your name, ma'am? And I told him my name is Married with Two Kids. Come on, somebody. Good answer. Good answer, baby. Married with two kids. Okay. Here's- so my homeboy says to me, he saw me on Facebook. He said, don't be cutting your hair no more. I was like, you don't get to say that to me. My husband likes it. Guess what? When he called the next time, I ain't answered the phone. He said, you all right? I said, oh, yeah, I'm all right. Put him back right in his place. You don't. That's how the door opens up. He's already talked to Ray. He thinks he's all in good and he going to speak. He don't have any right to speak to me. And I do love him, but I don't love him like that. He will never be above him right here. Nobody. And so you have to don't let those little slide things slide in. So he sent me a message. You all right? And so we have to talk about it. So guess what? Now he has Ray's number. If he wants to talk to me, he needs to call Ray. I mean, for real, I'm not letting. And just for and just so you know, when she says homeboy, this is a childhood friend living right next door. We grew up together like our whole lives. And so he's going through a rough time. We do need to minister to him. We can, but let what's appropriate be appropriate. I'm the mother of a teenage daughter and I need her to see everything is above the board. If I can't keep it above the board over Facebook and homeboys, I can't sit in this seat. It's just, the, it says the little foxes spoil the vine. So don't allow those things. It could be somebody. I, I, that's the reason why I gave Ray permission. I mean, I gave him permission to talk to Ray is because I want us to be able to help him. My grandparents and his parents were friends. They lived next to each other next door over 30 years. I used to play with him. We went to school together and he is in a, I mean, it's just, it's life or death. Really. He's in a facility. They're trying to, he tried to harm himself two weeks ago. I mean, we're really, I don't want to turn him away, but at the same point, Jesus is Lord and Jesus will be for him. He's going to respect my husband. And Ray wasn't on the conversation. I told him and I told Ray, I don't want to open a door. I well, I, I got something for that. Yeah. <laughs> I might go Scarface on him. <laughs> Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> I will. No, I, I will. <laughs> David chopped off Goliath's head. He loved Jesus. <laughs> but he... <laughs> Say hello to my little friend. Okay, we're going to let you go. We'll pick this up next week. Here's why being reasonable is important. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Last thing I'm going to say. Uh, this is why. Whenever I'm unreasonable, whenever I am unreasonable in any relationship, in my marriage, with my boss, with my kids, um, 
I'm not acting wisely. I'm not acting in the wisdom of God. One of my favorite verses of scripture, we did a series about two years ago called Wi-Fi, Wisdom, Influence, Favor, and Increase. And, and I taught about the wisdom of God. Wisdom has seven filters. If you ever want to know whether you're making a wise decision or not, run your decision through these seven filters. Put that scripture on the, on the, on the screen and then I'm done. Uh, James chapter 3, 17 through 18. Listen, this is James telling us how we can know with confidence whether we're making a wise decision or not. Number one, it says, but the wisdom of God that is, or the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure. If you're making a decision with impure motives, it is unwise. I say that again. If your motivation for why you're doing it is not pure before God and before men, it is a bad decision. No matter what it promises, if it is not pure in motive, it is not the wisdom of God. Number two, is it peaceable? If I'm making a decision where I'm stirring up strife, bad decision, it will backfire. Number three, if I'm making a decision where I am gentle or am I harsh, if I'm speaking harshly to my spouse, to my kids, to my coworkers, or I'm, I'm unwilling to, 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 to even be kind, it is not wise. Listen to number four, willing to yield. That's reasonable or unreasonable. Are you willing to yield? You before me. Every decision that I make where I am unreasonable or unwilling to yield is an unwise decision. I say that again. In your marriage, every time you make a decision where you are unreasonable and you are unwilling to yield to your spouse, to common sense, it is an unwise decision that will back fire. Right. You absolutely. That's what I said too, girl. You before me. Be willing to yield. We're out of time. We're going to pick up this conversation next week. Like I said, there's a whole bunch of stuff. we got the four cornerstones of contentment. We just touched briefly on who you're with. We're going to dive into that some more. But we want to pray for you. Team, why don't you guys come?